Hello there, and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent, and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Ida Waringa and by Stuart Weir. And on this week's show, we have lots on the finals of the CAF Confederation Cup and the CAF Champions League, where Widad Casablanca are well positioned against Al Ahly. And with the second leg of the Confederation Cup affected by stoppages in Algeria because of smoke from flares, we have some insights into the culture of fans using flares and lasers in North African football. It's just something that's a symbol of joy, a symbol of happiness, a symbol of, you know, uh, pandemonium, but happy pandemonium, I would say. That's coming up later. Also, Stuart looks ahead to the UEFA Champions League final with Manchester City chasing the treble. But let's start at the under-20 FIFA World Cup in Argentina, where Nigeria had a heartbreaking 1-0 extra-time loss to South Korea in the quarterfinals. Uh, the Flying Eagles were the last of the four African teams. I guess we'd say it was a bit of a disappointing showing for the African teams, Ida. It was, Steve. I mean, Africa has traditionally done better at the under-17 World Cup. The record holders are an African team, Nigeria. But with that said, Africa has done all right for itself, you know, at the under-20 before. The Flying Eagles have been runners-up in the past. But they also crashed out at the quarters in 99, 2007, and 2011. But look, all in all, I do agree, having the only remaining African team exit at the quarters was definitely a disappointment. Well, Senegal crashed out in the group stage, as we discussed last week. Tunisia and the Gambia were eliminated in the round of 16. Now, Gambia lost 1-0 to Uruguay, and Brazil thrashed Tunisia 4-1. But things had started pretty well for the Gambia. They had finished top of their group unbeaten, And, you know, who knows, perhaps had even started to inspire hopes of a performance similar to the seniors at the Afghan. As for Nigeria and Tunisia, they both made it out of the group stage as one of the best third-placed teams. Now, a big part of the exit centers around a lack of conversion and clinical technique in front of goal. I mean, we talked about it with Senegal, and the same pretty much applies with the other African teams. But I do believe that it's all about lessons to learn here, Steve. These boys are young. For some of them, it could very well have been the first time leaving their countries of birth. For most, it was definitely a maiden global experience. So if their federations can use this as a stepping stone, then even better. Though a big, big asterisk on if. Because unfortunately, as we know in Africa... Sometimes that's easier said than done. But on the flip side and on the bright side, we can actually see that happening, you know, with countries like the Gambia, for example, where real football development is happening. Yeah, sure. So there were some positives from the under-20 FIFA World Cup in Argentina. Right, so this week on the show we're focusing on the CAF finals with the USM Algier of Algeria winning a tense and thrilling Confederation Cup and with Al Ahly getting a narrow 2-1 win over Widad Casablanca in the first leg of the Champions League final. 
Well, I'm joined by North African football expert Maher Mezahi. Uh, Maher is Algerian. He spends most of his time in Algeria, but has been in France of late, where he is at the moment in Marseille. Uh, welcome to the show, Maher. Thanks for having me on, Steve. It's, it's a pleasure. I've been listening for a while, so it's great to come on and, and actually speak to you. Thanks. Super to have you with us. Um, lots to talk about on the Confederation Cup. But uh, firstly, that first leg of the CAF Champions League, exciting game in Cairo. Al Atli seemed to be in the driving seat to 2 nil up. But that uh, late goal for Wydad Casablanca really swung things in the favour of the Moroccan side. Yeah, I mean, for starters, it was really great to see El Ahli supporters back in Cairo International Stadium. And it actually happened during the group stages as well, as they were trying to, to chase victory over El Ahli to stay alive in the group stages. Um, but before then, El Ahli were playing home matches with supporters, but not in Cairo International Stadium. So that's really uh, a new phenomenon that we've seen this year. And I think... For the soul of a lot of Atlanta supporters, that's really, really great to see. Yeah. Since the Egyptian Revolution, you know, there's been attendance caps and, and repression sort of from the from the security forces when it comes to supporters. So it was really great to see them back at home. Other than that, yeah, it was, it was a great match. Uh, Ali, I think, is no surprise to anybody that they're the richest club in Africa. They can afford players like, you know, the South African Percy Tau from who was at the Premier League before and who was on $100,000 per month. Uh, on paper, they're, they're, you know, a fantastic side. They were favorites ahead of We Dead. We Dead are on their fourth coach this season. There's been too much instability, too much chaos. Uh, for the reigning champions in this competition. And so when they took, jumped out to two in the lead, I kind of expected that to happen. What I didn't expect to happen was for we did uh, equalize in the final five minutes of the match. I think there was just a lot of con- concentration, uh, by El Ahli and the Moroccans obviously made them pay for it very, very early. Yeah, so uh, Sunday's second leg uh, is not to be missed. It's uh, sure to be uh, full of attention, that one. Well, let's focus on the uh, CAF Confederation Cup final. USM Algier beat uh, Yanga, young Africans of Tanzania, on away goals. Uh, unlike the UEFA Champions League, the away goals rule is uh, still in place. Um, it was um, a surprise, I think, uh, that uh, second leg because uh, uh, Yanga managed to get a 1-0 victory there, but uh, it wasn't enough to um, give them... Uh, the aggregate uh, win because they went down on away goals. But uh, um, I think they gave the fans a bit of a, a surprise there, uh, Maher. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when US of Algiers had won 2-1 in Dar es Salaam, I think almost everyone considered this uh, second match to be a little bit of a formality. Um, and when Yanga, you know, they opened a scoring in the first, I believe, six or seven minutes via penalty shot, uh, I think that really was a kick in the mouth for USMA supporters because they realized that we're a goal away from losing the Confederation Cup final that everybody's been hyping up for around a week's time at home. It's almost unheard of. You know, when you go to places or countries in North Africa, especially Morocco, Algeria, a little bit in Tunisia, uh, the atmospheres that the supporters can conjure up are so intimidating that uh, it would be rare for them to sort of fumble a result at home, especially in a final for these competitions. So I think it really was a kick in the mouth when Yanga scored first, but USM of Algiers managed to, to sort of manage the rest of the game out and, and waste enough time to, to come through as champions. Yeah, they did. Uh, tell us a bit more about uh, USM uh, Algiers, the, the last of uh, the big Algerian teams to get to win uh, a CAF title. It was uh, quite a long wait for them. Yeah, USM of Algiers is one of two uh, clubs in Algeria that's made, born out of the Casbah of Algiers, which for me is the most uh, famous neighborhood in all of North Africa. Uh, the other being MC of Algiers, and together they make up the Derby of Algiers when they play. 
Um, it's a club that, you know, heavily entrenched in Algerian history. They, they claim to have the, given the most martyrs to the Algerian revolution. It's a terminology they use. So you can see the, the sort of nationalism that's built into the club. Many Algerian titles, many Algerian cups, but the closest they ever got to the continental work was 2015 when they got to the final of the Cap Champions League. Then they were bankrupt by an Algerian billionaire who's uh, now in prison. They lost uh, actually home and away to, to that very, very good TP Mizambist when they were also bankrupt <laughs> by a billionaire in Miskatumbi. Um, but they are under stable ownership now with a, a good budget, and I do expect them to continue to perform at a high level. So it wouldn't be surprise me uh, if they make it into the later stages of this tournament again uh, next year, now that they've qualified automatically as, as defending champions. Right, so uh, exciting um, second leg. And one thing that um, was very striking was the uh, use of uh, lasers and flares in that uh, game at the July 5 stadium. So when Juma Shabani was taking that penalty, uh, there were lasers directed in his face. And uh, uh, the game was stopped on occasions because of too much smoke uh, coming uh, from flares set off by fans. What uh, part of the North African football culture does this uh, Represent Maha. What does it mean to the fans uh, being able to use the the, the flares and, and the lasers when they go and watch games? You have some of Algiers. Uh, they actually light flares in the in the 37th minute because their club was created in 1937, and that was one of the stoppages in the second leg of the CAF Confederation Cup. Um, and that's something that's typical of Algerian clubs. Sierra Belouizdad will light flares in the 62nd minute because their club was created in 1962. MC of Algiers in the 76th minute because they won a treble in 1976. They won the African Champions League, the Algerian League, and the Algerian Cup final as well. And so they they call these. A krakage. Krakage basically just means eruption. And each club has different times when they'll do that during the very big game. So that's one of the reasons why uh, the, the match was stopped in the 37th minute in the second cup. So it's a tradition Algerian supporters have where they'll, each club will have a different time when they'll, what they call it, a krakage. That, what that basically means is if you have any pyrotechnics, now's the time to set them off. Um, and to get back to your question about what does this mean, you know, in Algeria, if you go to a wedding, there's going to be fireworks, there's going to be flares, there's going to be smoke bombs, there's going to be... Um, this is something that's sort of ingrained into our culture. Um, even before, you know, like before there were flares and fireworks, they would shoot blanks out of a, a hunting rifle, you know, at weddings. Uh, it's just something that's a symbol of joy, a symbol of happiness, a symbol of, you know, uh, pandemonium, but happy pandemonium, I would say. And so for supporters, this isn't necessarily something that's dangerous. This is something that, you again, you can see in any Algerian street in any week on any day. Lasers are another thing. But pyrotechnics, I've even heard Algerian supporters say something like, we have safe standing in Europe. Why can't we have, like, safe pyrotechnic zone? Even if the supporters themselves don't light it off, maybe the club can light it off, you know, in big matches, whether it's the World Cup or the African Cup of Nations, uh, after the final, they left, they let off fireworks anyway. So perhaps we can come to a way where we can uh, do some kind of safe pyrotechnic zone. And so they, it really is ingrained in our culture and, and it isn't really seen as something that's egregious. Well, it's very interesting because uh, the visibility was affected uh, seriously by those flares uh, in that uh, game uh, last Saturday. Uh, so do you have uh, restrictions then on use of flares at football matches? Yeah, there are restrictions. Of course, technically by the letter of the law, nobody's allowed to bring in flares. But at times, I honestly believe that the authorities sort of shut their eyes and, and let things be. So just uh, finally, Maha, on, on um, the, the lasers, um, that does seem to get out of hand um, on occasions in North African football. Yeah, and, and what's unfortunate is it's starting to, to seep to the other parts of the continent as well. 
Uh, we all remember uh, prior to the uh, final round of 2022 World Cup qualifying, Egypt were playing Senegal. And in the first leg in Egypt, there were a, a huge number of lasers pointed at the Senegalese players. But in the return leg, there were even more fl- uh, lasers pointed at, at Egyptian players. But wh- when the Egyptian players were lining up in penalty kicks to, to try and take it, it was almost possible for them to do so. So it is sort of infiltrating a little bit everywhere else uh, across the continent. And there's something that I believe authorities need to crack down on. Players, they also need to crack down because we have the infrastructure and I don't think we're innovative or creative enough to make some kind of safe pyrotech zone. Uh, if they could do that, I think that's something that Perhaps North Africa could be a pioneer and uh, maybe let the, the administrators of the stadium uh, let them off at strategic moments, either before the match, at halftime or after match, uh, if you really want to have a pyrotechnic show. Yeah, well, really interesting that. I was talking to a North African football expert, Maha Mezahi, uh, normally based in Algeria, currently in France, uh, looking at uh, that culture of lasers and flares in North African football. It's a happy pandemonium, says Maher, uh, when it comes to the fans uh, lighting off those flares. So what do you make of those insights, Ida? The flares are something that we very much associate with North African football. Interesting points are from Maher, and those lasers, something that most of us would have concerns about. Very insightful from Maher there, Steve. I mean, the flares and all these lights and smoke really are a part of football tradition, and especially in the North. About the laser concerns in particular, well, there's been numerous cases of lasers being weaponized. And FIFA's stance on this is covered in the FIFA Stadium Safety and Security Regulations, Article 16 of its Disciplinary Code. So I'm going to go a bit further back than that iconic image of Mohamed Salah with his face pretty much covered in all green from the lasers in that World Cup qualifier against Senegal. So at the Euro 2020, UEFA fined England when their fans pointed lasers at Danish goalkeeper Kasper Schmeichel while he was trying to save a penalty. Even further back in 2014, Fabio Capello, who was then head coach of Russia, blamed their group stage exit on the fact that Algerian fans were pointing lasers at the Russian goalkeeper when Algeria took the free kick that led to the goal. And recently, there was the Arsenal fan who was arrested in connection to Modric's laser lights incident. So, Specifically with the lasers, I 100% agree, Steve, and see why they are illegal in the stadiums, and I support it fully. Yeah, sure. Big concerns about the use of uh, lasers uh, at uh, football matches. Thanks, Ida. This is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. Still to come, Stuart on Manchester City's FA Cup win and whether they can do the treble this Saturday. You can follow us on Twitter at Planet Sport FA and you can download our app and listen to the show anytime and access past programs too in our archive. To download the app, go to the Play Store or the Apple iTunes App Store and enter Planet Sport Football Africa. 
Well, let's go to social media now. And last week, Solis Chuku picked out his uh, top three African players in Europe this season. Uh, he went for Victor Osimen of Napoli, uh, Seko Fofana of Lance, the Ivorian, and uh, the high-scoring Nigerian Gift Orban of Ghent. Other notable players include Mohamed Salah, Riyad Mahrez and Atraf Hakimi. So we asked, who would you say was the best African player in Europe this just-ended season? Well, the majority did go for Victor Osimen, the Nigerian, but we had some very interesting other contributions. SMK in Namibia picked out Hakim Ziyech, the Moroccan with uh, Chelsea, of course, who did so well at the World Cup. Uh, Gemo is a Cameroonian living in the USA. Uh, Gemo says, I go for the Villarreal duo, Samuel Chukweze and Nicholas Jackson. They're the African players that impress me the most, that I enjoy watching as a fan of the La Liga. Uh, Chukwezi, the Nigerian, and Nicholas Jackson uh, from Senegal. Uh, Gemo says their contribution was huge for Villarreal, although they fell short by not finishing in the top four and qualifying for the UEFA Champions League. Thanks for that. Uh, then Balong Baji in the Gambia says, I go for the Angolan Mbalo Nzola playing for Spezia in Syria A. He's got lots of desire and energy, and he scores remarkable goals, making him the hottest player in the Syria uh, says Belong and uh, yes Roma are reportedly nearing a deal for Mbala and Zola they want to sign him uh, from uh, Spezia in Liberia, Seleke Kamara says that Yassine Bono is the best man. That's the Morocco goalkeeper playing for Sevilla. And a Trent's K. Calvin Walter III, also in Liberia, goes for Yassine Bono, saying he did it at the World Cup in Qatar, and he did it just again in the UEFA Europa League final. Kudos to Bono, says Trent's. Uh, then many went for Victor Osimen, including uh, Moses Muiwa in Nigeria, Akinwali Smith Hashim, also in Nigeria, uh, Kon Kon Alu in Sudan says Osimen led the way this season and Yaya Soy in the Gambia saying Victor owns that. Well, thanks so much uh, for all of those views. Always great to hear from you on social media. This week we're asking, what do you think about the Saudi League? Uh, so the Saudi Arabian Pro League has attracted a lot of attention this week with Karim Benzema and N'Golo Kante moving on big money deals, joining Cristiano Ronaldo there. And at Crystal Palace and Ivory Coast forward Wilfred Zaha is among other players who look set to move to Saudi Arabia. So do you think that the Saudi League will become one of the biggest in the world? Do you think that you'll be watching it in years to come? And can it maybe rival the English Premier League? You can post a comment on our Facebook page, that's Planet Sport Football Africa, or send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. What do you think about the Saudi League? Well, now let's go to our European football expert, Stuart Weir, in the UK. And let's uh, first go back to last Saturday, uh, Manchester City uh, beating Man United uh, in the FA Cup final, Stuart. Yes, City completed leg two of their possible treble, defeating their City rivals, Manchester United, 2-1 in the FA Cup final. It was a strange game. City clearly the better team, taking the lead after 11 seconds, but in the end only winning 2-1, with United hitting the bar in the closing minutes. But the depth of the squad was another factor in the game. Chasing the equaliser, Manchester United brought on their first substitute, an 18-year-old, Garnacho. City brought on Phil Foden, 
and left Reid Murray's on the bench. So much is their strength. It was a disappointment for United to lose, but I think if at the beginning of the season you'd offered them a win in the League Cup, third place in the Premier League, and an FA Cup final place, United supporters would have bitten your hand off. Of course, Ten Hag has a lot of work to do, but he seems to be taking United in the right direction, and of course, City are heading for the treble. An interesting statistic, Steve. Completing the double of League and Cup was only done five times in about a 100 years before the Premier League era. But since then, it's happened eight times, with Arsenal and Manchester United achieving it three times, Manchester City twice. You could say that the FA Cup is of less value now, but the top clubs are also in four competitions compared to originally just two. None of that seems to explain, really, why the double seems to have become more common. Well, interesting stats there. And yeah, Riyad Mahrez not even getting to play in the FA Cup final. Um, so, Stuart, uh, many feeling that uh, the game against Manchester United was uh, an easier leg of this uh, potential treble than uh, Inter Milan in the Champions League final this uh, Saturday for Man City. Well, possibly, but I think City are so strong. Who would they not be favourites to beat? Inter Milan on Saturday evening and the Champions League, of course, is the one trophy that Pep Guardiola has not managed to deliver to Manchester City. But they will be strong favourites for the final. You know, the Champions League is the best team from each country playing against each other. But yet, if you look at the results Manchester City have achieved in reaching the final, it just gives you an indication of how dominant they've been. In the group stage, they played Seville of Spain twice, 7-1 over the two games. In the knockout round, they played Leipzig of Germany and won 7-0 in the home leg. In the quarter-final, German giant Bayern Munich beaten 3-0. And in the semi-final, Manchester City 4, Real Madrid 0. As well as scoring 31 goals in their 12 Champions League games so far, City have conceded only five. But an interesting statistic is that the goalkeeper who has made most saves in this year's Champions League is Inter Milan's Cameroonian Andre Onana. He saved 44 shots. And I can't help thinking, Steve, he'll have ample opportunity of adding to that number in the final. And Onana, incidentally, is Inter's only African player. Inter finished third in Serie A, but fully 18 points behind champions Napoli. And their squad includes a World Cup winner in Martinez uh, with Argentina this year. And their forward line, whatever else you say about it, they certainly have experience. Romelu Lukaku, son of a Congolese international, but he's interesting because he struggled at Manchester United and Chelsea, but has scored over 50 goals in the last three years at Inter Milan. And then, do you remember, Aidan Dzeko, who had five years at Manchester City. He's now 37, but he's still scoring regularly for Inter. And then Henrik Mkhitaryan, who had four, I would say, disappointing years at Manchester United and Arsenal, but he's now at Inter and playing regularly. So the old guard, but I don't think they will be good enough to stop Manchester City getting that treble. 
Yeah, it's going to be interesting. It'll be a high-pressure game, uh, no doubt, for Man City. Um, Okay, to the English Premier League, and uh, Luton Town took the uh, final promotion slot, winning the championship playoff with uh, Zimbabwean marvellous Nakamba on loan from Aston Villa, helping them uh, to beat Coventry City in the final. Um, Tell us a bit more about Luton, Stuart. Yes, well, it's what was called the $200 million game. The playoff final to claim that last place in the Premier League. Yes, even if Luton are relegated in their first season, that is a sum of money their promotion will be worth, including the so-called parachute payments. Luton is a town 50 kilometres north of London, a population of just over 200,000. Frankly, the town is best known for having an international airport and manufacturing cars. The average attendance this season has been 9,000, and their compact ground holds just 10,000, the lowest in the Premier League. They have plans for a new stadium, and at Christmas, the club was 15th in the Championship, but they moved up to third, won both their playoff games, the final went to extra time and penalties, with Luton winning 6-5. The club started with Nathan Jones as manager, but when he departed for that disastrous stint at Southampton, the club appointed Rob Edwards. Now, we've talked about Rob Edwards before because he was appointed by Watford and fired after two months, the beginning of this season. What a season he's had, going to Watford, getting fired, going to Luton and taking them into the Premier League. Now, Luton were relegated from the old First Division in 1992. That was the year before the Premier League started. And they've waited 31 years to get into the Premier League. But it's an incredible story because not only did they drop out of the top division, they spiralled all the way down, dropping out of the Football League, down to the fifth tier of football in 2009, taking five years to get back up. As you say, they've got marvellous Nakamba. They've also got Peli Ruddock, born in England but identifying as Congolese, and Elijah Adebayo, who is of Nigerian descent. We always say that the three promoted clubs start as favourites for relegation, and that, I think, is definitely the case with Luton. They do not have players of Premier League quality, and as a club, they don't have a Premier League structure. Their stadium only holds 10,000. And, you know, as I watched the players celebrating their promotion, I couldn't help wondering how many of them will actually play in the Premier League. Will Luton, like Nottingham Forest, try to buy an entirely new team? Whatever happens, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Yeah, it is indeed. Uh, The Hatters, Luton, getting uh, promoted. And uh, Tottenham uh, have uh, a new manager, Stuart. Yes, his name is Ange Postacoglu. And if you've no idea who he is, you're excused because I don't know a lot about him either. He's Australian. He's 57 with lots of experience. Nine years with clubs in Australia, two years in Greece where he was born. For five years, he was the manager of the Australian national team. He worked four years in Japan and most recently two years with Celtic and Scotland. Lots of experience, but frankly, Tottenham seems a massive step up. Daniel Levy has been chairman of Tottenham for 20 years and this will be the 12th managerial appointment he's made. Harry Redknapp, Andre Villas-Boas, Tim Sherwood, Pochettino, Jose Mourinho, Nuno 
Antonio Conte have all come and gone. Tottenham have the best stadium in the Premier League, but in recent years have not had a team to match it. For much of the season, Tottenham were in the top four looking at a Champions League place, but they finished eighth, not even good enough for the Europa Conference League. No European football for them next season. And their star player, Harry Kane, has just one year left in his contract and Tottenham may decide to sell him this summer so they'll get something for him rather than leaving him in a position that he can leave in a free transfer after a year. Kane has made it clear that he loves Tottenham, the only club he's ever played for, apart from a short loan spell. But he also made it clear that he wants to win trophies before his career ends. And at the moment, he probably doesn't think that can happen at Tottenham. We also know that Tottenham had talks with Julian Nagelsmann, so Postacoglu was certainly not their first choice. Time will tell whether he can turn Tottenham round, but I can't help wondering if he will be out of his depth with no experience in any of the top world leagues nor of managing players of the calibre uh, he will need to be successful at Tottenham. And there's also a strong view among Tottenham fans that Daniel Levy, the chairman, is in fact the problem and that the Tottenham team will not become successful under his leadership. And the chants of Levy out have been heard a lot this season. Interesting time for Tottenham, but I think that the new manager has a lot to do yeah, sure. Won't be easy. Thanks, Stuart. That's it for this week's show. So we've got the UEFA Champions League final on Saturday, Man City into Milan. And then on Sunday night, it's the CAF Champions League final second leg uh, with Widad Casablanca of Morocco hosting the Egyptian giant Al-Athli. Uh, so it's going to be an interesting footballing weekend. Well, from me, Steve Vickers in Harare, from a Stuart Weir and from Ida Waringa, thanks so much for listening, and Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.